Good morning, everybody. It'll be nice to have our own church home someday, if the Lord allows that. We had a good time in prayer about it yesterday. Um, just thinking right now, today, I have a little bit of a PowerPoint presentation, and as usual, I'm going to have to be standing away, standing off to the side, because I, if I get too far over here, even though I'm short, no, it, it kind of interrupts things a little bit, so sorry about that. Um, how many... Let's see if we got the thing up there running. Is it going to work? While they're getting that going, uh, how many people have seen the movie The Hiding Place? A lot of hands. Anybody out there? 1975 movie, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, how about especially youth? Really want to see your hands. 20 years old and younger. How many of you have seen The Hiding Place? Wow, there's no hands. I don't see one. There's one, Jocelyn. You read the book, that's even better. Very good. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that would be a... It's a 1975 movie. Really well done. I would really recommend it, especially as this series that we're going to be going through coming up here. I think it's very appropriate. Parents, a great movie to watch with your kids. Uh, youth leaders, maybe a good movie to watch in, uh, in a Sunday school or something in, with the youth or have a film night. Just a great, great film about uh, some very important issues that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks or so here. Uh, I thought I'd probably see a lot of hands regarding the hiding place. How many people have heard of the Manhattan, pro- the Manhattan Declaration? Oh, there are quite a few. Well, Sean, yeah, <laughs> you'd better have heard of it, I guess. <laughs> You're one of the ones that decide we should speak on this issue here, so <laughs> very good. Well, we are going to be talking about the Manhattan Declaration coming up here. Uh, regarding the hiding place, as far as a tie-in, there's a scene in that movie whereby um, the, the Holland has just been invaded by the by the German Nazis. And one of the first things that they do is they require the Jews to come in and start registering, getting their name on a list, and they have to pick up a yellow star and pin it to their outer clothing. And uh, the story is really about a family, the Ten Boom family, and old Casper Weinberg, Casper Weinberg, Casper (laughs) Ten Boom, show my age here, Casper (laughs) Ten Boom, Um, he, uh, uh, he's he's definitely an early gent, he's He's got a white beard. He's, he's, uh, he's there. And he's, he's a doddering old man, but he decides he's going to go out and, and get involved in civil disobedience. And he reasons that if we all get a yellow star, then the Nazis won't know, the Germans won't know who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. So he goes out and he gets a, Germ- a, a yellow star and starts wearing it everywhere he goes. Well, word gets out to the, to the church and to the pastor of what old... Father Ten Boom is doing, and the pastor comes to visit him late one night and begins to talk with him and try to reason with him and persuade him that the Germans have now occupied Holland. They are the governing authorities. As Christians, we need to be obeying the governing authorities. Therefore, Father Ten Boom, you really shouldn't be wearing this yellow star. You should take it off. And as he's arguing with him and trying to persuade him, a baby begins to cry. And the pastor's visibly shocked. What's going on? Because old Father Tenboom is too old to have any babies around. 
and his two daughters that are living with him are both middle-aged and not married. What are they doing with a baby? It's late at night. What's going on? He begins to inquire about what's going on. And so the, the women begin to explain to him, well, since Father Ten Boom was wearing this yellow star, word got out to the resistance, and some men came by, and they asked if we would take care of a Jewish baby. There are rumors going on that the Jewish babies are being gathered together for experimentation purposes. And so they wanted a safe place for the baby until they could get it out to the countryside. And uh, at that moment, uh, one of the women suddenly came up with a bright idea that, Pastor, the Lord must have brought you here. You live on the outskirts of this city. You could take this baby and it would be much closer, be much easier to get out to the countryside. And the pastor begins to back off. He's shocked. He begins to stammer and stall. And he says, no, it's not possible. it's, It's impossible. I can't do that. I have children. And Father Tenboom cuts the conversation short and says, Pastor, you have persuaded me. I will remove my yellow star, but we will keep the baby. It's a great story, and it goes on from there. They, they end up harboring um, uh, and protecting Jews during the Holocaust, and they suffer greatly for it. A great, great book to read and a great movie to read, uh, to see. Well, the Manhattan Declaration is getting at the heart of a lot of these issues that we're talking about here. Uh, issues that, uh, that uh, are considered foundational in many ways. Issues like the sanctity of human life, the sacredness of marriage, and religious liberty. The Manhattan Declaration was a document that was signed by uh, about a hundred and, well, there were three drafters. You see their names there. Well, you will if I put it up. <laughs> One of them was Chuck Colson, who um, you probably all recognize. And he was uh, one of the drafters, actually, of, the, of the, the Manhattan Declaration. It was done in the fall of 2009. There are, at the time, there were about 148 signatories, along with the three drafters and uh, Christian leaders from all over. And to date, there are about a half a million signers. And we thought as leadership at Lion and Lamb that it was something that we ought to bring to everybody's attention. The Manhattan Declaration, it's a 4,700-some word document. We're not going to read all 4,700 words today. But uh, it's been signed by a movement of Catholic, Orthodox, and Evangelical leaders of uh, co- collaborating together on these three great issues. Also, uh, the Manhattan Declaration does endorse civil disobedience under certain circumstances. Among the 148 signatories are 14 Roman Catholic bishops, two Eastern Orthodox bishops, 12 presidents, and 19 faculty members from seminaries and colleges, 46 leaders of various ministries, 22 pastors, 10 magazine editors, and publishers. And I have an apology here. and That is that uh, there is going to be a fair amount of reading today. Uh, it's going to be an unusual kind of message, more of a teaching message, more of a, uh, a more, maybe more something you'd experience normally in Sunday school than a, than a church service. And I apologize for that. Let's see if I can find a way to do this. 
The, um, but I th- we thought it was, like I say, worth bringing to everybody's attention. And we're going to be pushing the time a little bit, so I hope don't watch your clock real closely. Not too badly, but a little bit. The Declaration, uh, some people might consider it um, as having a selective history. The preamble is basically a, a history of the Christian church, 2,000 years. And some people, um, I don't know if you've ever been like me, but I've, I've talked with people about Christ at different times, or maybe even not talked with people about Christ, and they, I've been accosted by people. In fact, that just happened to me, what was it, last, uh, not, yes, not this last Friday, but the Friday before, a fellow came into our home, and, and uh, before I even identified with Christ or anything, he began to just lay out for me that in his opinion, the history of, the, of Christianity and the history of the church was a history of, of uh, pogroms and religious wars and, and crusades and inquisitions and oppression of women. And he's just on and on and on. I couldn't believe it. I think we do have a history that's worth remembering. And that's what we're, the preamble is about. Uh, Mike Halpin gave a good message on this back on Easter. And you might want to go back and review that. Uh, Mike, I think last week or so, referred to a book. He has D. James Kennedy's book, uh, uh, D. James Kennedy and Jerry Newcomb, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Uh, another book that I would really recommend, actually D. James Kennedy's book uh, inspired this one by Alvin Schmidt, How Christianity Changed the World. And if you're really willing to be able to give a good answer to people about the importance of Christianity and how it's impacted our culture, I would really recommend this book. It's written by a sociologist and a historian who um, really goes into depth. Uh, he used uh, D. James Kennedy book, Kennedy's book as kind of a starting place to get to, to look at some things uh, and kind of served as a template, but he went far, far deeper than D. James Kennedy did. Really would recommend that. Getting into the preamble itself, Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition. And if you have your handout, this is on the handout as well, but I'll be putting it up here in front of us as, as well. Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming God's word, seeking justice in our societies, resisting tyranny, and reaching out with compassion to the poor, oppressed, and suffering. While fully acknowledging the imperfections and shortcomings of Christian institutions and communities in all ages, I've already alluded to that, just as uh, Father Tenboom did. Uh, actually, I didn't complete my story, did I? Father Tenboom, at the end, uh, the, the, the women came to him and said, uh, that man calls himself a pastor? And Father Tenboom said, well, just because you're in, the cook, in a cookie, if you're, just because you're a mouse in a cookie jar, that doesn't make you a Christian. I would have preferred that if he had said, uh, just because you carry the name of Christ, it doesn't mean that you're obeying Christ. And there have been times in Christian history that there have been imperfections and shortcomings of Christian institutions and communities in all ages. But we would like to claim also the heritage of those Christians who defended innocent life by rescuing discarded babies from trash heaps in Roman cities and publicly denouncing the empire's sanctioning of infanticide. In this school and many places uh, here at Carepervel, oftentimes we romance about the Greek and Roman classical societies, and they do have an awful lot to offer us. And yet, infanticide was rampant. The 
the uh, survival of the strong was was very very important, and as we think about the classical uh, the, the classical soci- societies, it was not about protecting the weak and the helpless. That is something that came with Christ, and with Christians following Christ, we'd like to claim that heritage. We remember with reverence those believers who sacrificed their lives by remaining in Roman cities to tend the sick and dying during the plagues. We're reviewing that in the Truth Project, the people who are going through that here about a week ago, uh, how there was a military, a Roman military officer who recorded in early writings of a, how the military had encircled a, um, a Roman city trying to um, bring food to it and things like that, pre- uh, pro- provide, provide some infrastructure but they had removed themselves to the outskirts so that they wouldn't be infected by the plague. In fact, everybody that was healthy basically had left the city, including the politicians, of course, and and everybody else. But there was one group, one sect of people uh, following a deity they called Christos, who were healthy people who stayed in the city in order to minister to the sick and the dying with the plague. There were also Christians who died bravely in the Colosseums rather than deny their Lord. If any of you have seen the movie Gladiator, they considered putting some of the death scenes of Christians dying in the Colosseum uh, in the movie itself. In the end, they used it as supplemental information, and you have to go to the extra clips and things to be able to see something like that, But um, trying to reenact it. But a horrendous time in Christian history in which Christians suffered rather than deny their master and Lord, Jesus Christ. After the barbarian tribes overran Europe, Christian monasteries preserved not only the Bible, but also the literature and art of Western culture. It was Christians who combated the evil of slavery. Papal edicts of the 16th and 17th centuries decried the practice of slavery and first excommunicated anyone involved in the slave trade. Evangelical Christians in England, led by John Wesley and William Wilberforce, put an end to the slave trade in that country. Christians under Wilberforce's leadership also formed hundreds of societies for helping the poor, the imprisoned, and child laborers chained to machines. And... That's been uh, enshrined recent, in recent years by the movie uh, uh, Amazing Grace, which is a good movie that documented the first 26 years of Wilberforce's struggle against slavery. What the film doesn't go on to talk about is how that was just simply the first step. That was when he, fin- he finally got uh, the slave trade abolished, in the c- but slavery still continued in the... In the uh, in the British colonies and, and all over Britain, it took another 20, 20 years till he was, after 46 years, before they finally got slavery abolished. A 46-year fight for William Wilberforce to get rid of slavery. And it was his, Christian, it was his Christianity, his evangelicalism, that motivated him for that fight. In Europe, Christians challenged the divine claims of kings and successfully fought to establish the rule of law and balance of governmental powers, which made modern democracy possible. And in America, Christian women stood at the vanguard of the suffrage movement. The great civil rights crusades of the 1950s and 60s were led by Christians claiming the scriptures and asserting the glory of the image of God in every human being, regardless of 
religion, age, or class. Christians have worked to end human trafficking, AIDS suffering in Africa, water shortages, even Haiti orphans. Can you imagine that? (laughs) The same devotion to human dignity has led Christians in the last decade to work to end the dehumanizing scourge of human trafficking and sexual slavery, bring compassionate care to AIDS sufferers in Africa, and assist in a myriad of other Human rights causes, from providing clean water in developing nations to providing homes for tens of thousands of children orphaned by war, disease, and gender discrimination. Like those who have gone before us in the faith, Christians today are called to proclaim the gospel of costly grace. And I have that in italics here because all through this document, it refers to the gospel and it refers to Christians and it refers to the church without defining any of those words. I think it's important to... um, to just recognize that. Um, some people are very concerned about that, that we're crossing ecclesial lines of Orthodox, Catholic, and uh, uh, Protestantism. And yet uh, we're using all these words as, a, as the common basis for our getting, of our getting together on this. Um, it is the grace of God, uh, the, the gospel at least, to, that protects the intrinsic deity of the human person and stands for the common good. In being true to its own calling, the call to discipleship, the church through service to others can make a profound contribution to the public good. Getting into the declaration itself. And that's on the back side of your sheet if you have it there. We as Orthodox, Catholic, and Evangelical Christians have gathered beginning in New York on September 28, 2009 to make the following declaration, which we sign as individuals, not on behalf of our organizations, but speaking to and from our communities. We act together in obedience to the one true God, the triune God of holiness and love, who has laid total claim on our lives, and by that claim calls us with believers in all ages and all nations to seek and defend the good of all who bear his image. We set forth this declaration in light of the truth that is grounded in Holy Scripture and natural human reason, which in itself, in our view, is the gift of a beneficent God. And in the very nature of the human person, we call upon all people of goodwill, believers and non-believers alike, to consider carefully and reflect critically on the issues we here address as we, with St. Paul, commend this appeal to everyone's conscience in the sight of God." And this is the only scripture that I think is cited in the declaration. I put the reference here. It's not actually in the original declaration, but uh, there isn't a lot of scripture that is cited, although I believe the document as a whole is very scriptural. While the whole scope of Christian moral concern, including a special concern for the poor and vulnerable, claims our attention, We are especially troubled that in our nation today, the lives of the unborn, the disabled, and the elderly are severely threatened. That the institution of marriage, already buffeted by promiscuity, infidelity, and divorce, is in jeopardy of being redefined to accommodate fashionable ideologies. That that is one of the major claims that's made by people uh, who are upset with Christians who take a stand for marriage, is that you Christians are divorcing as much as anybody else out there. And why are you then upset about other, other lifestyle choices that are outside of uh, 
outside of marriage? And I guess the answer to that would be that two wrongs don't make a right, do they? That freedom of religion and the rights of conscience are gravely jeopardized by those who would use the instruments of coercion to compel persons of faith to compromise their deepest convictions. In the critic's corner, when you read on the internet or talk with people, the argument is made that isn't this just a rehash of old conservative Christian concerns of the last century? And it's an important question. Our youth today, especially in universities, are being buffeted with a myriad of other issues that uh, professors and others think that are as important as those three that are listed here. Uh, what about in the environment? What about social justice, poverty, and health care? Why not include those? Just to name a few others here in the United States. What about more global things already alluded to in the preamble, such as water shortages, orphans, the AIDS epidemic, human trafficking, the suppression of women, and continuing slavery? I think a good argument could be made from the from uh, the basis of what might be called graded absolutism. And in that score, I would really recommend a book if you're having trouble sorting through some of these issues and what's important or not. I shouldn't say not important. I don't mean to say that. Uh, more what's foundational and what's peripheral. Um, wh how do we, you ever decide that anything is more important than anything else? And a very biblical approach to answering this sort of thing is might would be called what's called uh, graded absolutism, and this book, uh, Options in Contemporary Christian Ethics by uh, Norm Geisler is a great help in that, in that regard. I'd recommend it highly. It's based upon the idea that in revelation and in natural law, there are greater and lesser commandments. Just as Jesus uh, told Pilate, the one who delivered me to you is the one who has the greater sin. There's greater sin and lesser sin. And just as, uh, as Peter, just as Peter, just as Jesus told the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, lawyer who questioned him, uh, and they talked about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There are greater and lesser commandments and greater and lesser sins. Because uh, the one, the sanctity of human life, and two, the dignity of marriage as a union of husband and wife, and three, freedom of conscience and religion are foundational principles of justice and the common good, we are compelled by our Christian faith to speak and act in their defense. Why would they be foundational? The sanctity of human life, if life is not important, can't you do anything to anybody? If life isn't important, if it's not worth preserving, then why is any life important? And wh why is justice important? Why should you protect anybody? It's foundational. Life is foundational. The dignity of marriage as a union of husband and wife, it's the basis of society. It's been recognized by civilizations for centuries that you have to have a stable society. And, a st and marriage is the most basic place to, keep, to teach children, the, to socialize children, to help them. It's not the schools, it's not other places, it's the family that 
that socializes children and prepares them for interacting and living in this world that we have. And the family is the basis of prosperity of a nation. Um, there have been numerous sociological studies that have been done that have shown that poverty is not linked so much to race as it is to one other thing. The thing that poverty is best linked to more than any other thing is whether or not the family is headed by a single woman or not. That transcends race. When women are, are divorced, when they're left on their own, they have the, we find the greatest numbers, the greatest percentages of them are caught up in poverty. And freedom of conscience and religion are found as a foundation principle. If the churches are no, no longer allowed to speak the prophetic word of God, if they are no longer allowed to speak their conscience and to bring a vision and testimony to society, then society will suffer. The churches are the conscience of society. These are foundational principles that have to be protected. And they're, they've been under attack for decades, and they're coming in, in, under even more attack recently. In this declaration, we affirm the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of every human being as a creature fashioned in the very image of God, possessing inherent rights of equal dignity in life. Marriage is a conjugal, number two, marriage is a conjugal union of man and woman ordained by God from the creation and historically understood by believers and non-believers alike to be the most basic institution in society. I better bring it up. There we go. And three, religious liberty, which is grounded in the character of God, the example of Christ, and the inherent freedom and dignity of human beings created in the divine image. We are Christians, going ahead with the declaration, we are Christians who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesial differences to affirm our right and, more importantly, our obligation to speak and act in defense of these truths. We pledge to each other and to our fellow believers that no power on earth, be it cultural or political, will intimidate us into silence or acquiescence. It is our duty to proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in its fullness, both in season and out of season. May God help us not to fail in that duty. The signers uh, on that day uh, that in, in the fall of 2009 is a who's who list of, of a lot of, of, like I said, 151 people. Many names here you would recognize, I think. I know I recognize several of them. Uh, Randy Alcorn, uh, successor to Randall Terry, founder and director of Eternal Perspective Ministries. Uh, uh, Mark Bailey, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Steve Brown, author, national radio broadcaster. Um, Dr. James Dobson, has anybody heard of him before? Um, Dinesh D'Souza, Johnny Erickson Tata, Jonathan Falwell, the son of Jerry Falwell, Bill Federer, president of Amerisearch Incorporated in St. Louis, oh, Wayne Grudem, Jerry Jenkins, Left Behind series, of course, um, author, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, Moody Bible Church, Josh McDowell, uh, Marvin Olasky, editor-in-chief of World Magazine, J.I. Packer, 
Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, Washington, D.C. Ron Sider. Uh, Joe Stoll, former President of Moody Bible Institute. Dr. Michael Youssef, radio teacher. Robbie Zacharias, founder and chairman of the board. Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. If you, if you want to name drop, there are a lot of names there we could certainly drop regarding the Manhattan Declaration. People who thought it was a very important thing to sign. If I were to include some people who have chosen not to sign, that's kind of an interesting thing as well. We have some people here like R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur, James White, Alistair Begg, radio personality, Dr. Michael Horton, Dr. John, Ta- John Piper, Mark Driscoll. I don't know if there's a reason behind this or not, but I find it interesting that uh, this group, at least up here, is all uh, Presbyterian for whatever reason. Uh, I, I don't know if that, there's any reasoning behind that or a link or something, but there is, there is that connection among all of them. Um, I don't know whether they signed the form eventually, uh, whether they're among, they're among the half a million signers. I know that they were not among the initial signers. There were no Grahams, which I found interesting. There's no Billy, no Franklin, no Amgram lots. People who chose not to sign it, perhaps. R.C. Sproul was asked... Uh, R.C., why didn't you sign the Manhattan Declaration? And this was his answer. I offer the following answer. The Manhattan Declaration confuses common grace and special grace by combining them. Mike taught on, on uh, common grace and special grace about a year ago when he, when he talked about visiting uh, uh, the, um, uh, the trail. Uh, the, the, what am I trying to say? The Shunga Trail. Thank you, Mike. Yes. <laughs> it's a good message. I, and I remember that stood out to me at the time. I had not really heard that issue, that, that before, the issue of, of a common grace and special grace. Common grace being the, um, the, uh, the blessings that God gives to everybody. Like the scripture talks about that uh, God makes the sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. That's common grace. Rain. Um, even civil authority that, that stabilizes society and, and uh, accounts for and protects people against the excesses of people's passions would be considered a common grace. But then special grace are those blessings that are reserved for people who have entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of b- having that relationship with him, they are given the special grace of eternal life, for example, the special grace of, of being able to have victory over sin. That is a special grace that is unique to those who know Jesus Christ, who are elect in Christ. R.C. Sproul goes on, While I would march with the bishop of Rome and an orthodox prelate to resist the slaughter of innocents in the womb, I could never ground that co-belligerency on the assumption that we share a common faith and a unified understanding of the gospel. And it does raise the issue of what is the gospel, and do we share a common faith? Um, 
we can cooperate on a lot of political issues, on a lot of things, uh, on a lot of. We could be co-belligerents in many in many areas. Uh, the uh, but you know this document is signed by Orthodox, Catholic, and and uh, Protestant Christians. What about Muslims? Muslims have said that they're against abortion. Uh, what about Mormons? They've taken a very strong uh, stand uh, uh, in regard to marriage. What about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses? Should they be invited to sign? They haven't been invited to sign. What is the gospel anyway? I think John 20, 30 through 31, you can go, of course, many places, and I'm sure that uh, just about everybody here could probably explain what the gospel was. But I think one of the, one of the clearest statements I think about the gospel that I like is out of John 20, uh, where John, the apostle, the, uh, the follower, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, stated that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, in the gospel that John wrote. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All that he, the only condition that John sets down here is belief. That's the only condition he lays down for eternal life. And, but there is a content to it. It's not belief in belief. It's belief in the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And that's not some new age meaning. For the meaning of Christ, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament wasn't even written yet. And in the early days, Paul and the other apostles, they preached, the, the, they preached prophecy from the Old Testament about who the Christ was. The Christ comes from the, the uh, Hebrew word Messiah. And uh, in Luke 23, 2, when the Jews were trying to explain to Pilate why Jesus was a dangerous person, they said it's because he claims to be Christ a type of king. And the whole issue of lordship salvation sometimes I think gets bogged down in forgetting that the name of Jesus himself, Christ isn't his last name. It's not his family name. It's not like McFall. It's, it's his title. It's who he is. He's a type of king. And he is the Lord. He is the Lord that, that is the rightful ruler of this world. So it's a belief in a content of who Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. On the mission field, as well as in American universities, it's easy to, you start thinking about a lot of issues a lot more deeply. You run into a lot of people that you don't always agree with or people that uh, you share a lot in common with, but, but not as much as sometimes you'd expect. Uh, I know I was in a Bible study and we had a, in our Bible study, uh, one of the missionaries in the study was from a Pentecostal background, believed that you had to speak in tongues to really be a Christian, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another, uh, another uh, fellow in our Bible study was from a, um, a closed brethren background, and he thought it was very, very important that women wear head coverings and that there be wine in the cup, even though we're in a Muslim society, and that we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Another... Uh, fellow in the study was from John MacArthur's church, and at that time I was claiming more of a Dallas Theological Seminary background and a Grace Theological Seminary background, and there was the conflict going on between uh, Lordship Salvation of, of John MacArthur and the Grace Theological Society of Dallas Theological Society. One of my best friends is this guy here, 
and I won't even say his name for because he's uh, right now he's just been kicked out of Morocco. He is a believer uh, that has, uh, and these are very, this is an old picture. His uh, oldest here just graduated from high school and got a full ride scholarship to a university in Switzerland. So it's an old picture. Um, he wanted to identify with the Moroccan believers, and he did very closely. He has spent time in prison. Him in one room, Moroccan believers in another room. They sang hymns back and forth to each other, encouraged each other. And uh, Dave was one of my best friends. He's six foot seven. We played basketball together, uh, had a lot of fun. Uh, people would look at him and wonder if I was American. Uh, neat, neat guy. Not too long before we left Morocco, I, I um, found out that he uh, had an unusual, unorthodox belief I'd never heard of before. And Steve Green, wherever he is, could identify with this. Uh, Steve here today. Um, I had a paper I need to give him. The, um, it's uh, something called open theism. And I'd never heard of it before. It, um, it's a belief that uh, basically God doesn't know everything, I guess. That uh, he doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what people will choose. Um, I'd never heard of such a thing before. Uh, Dave would present the gospel just as I would in uh, talking with people. But he's, uh, uh, he's uh, uh, but in, in, reg- in this regard, he, w- he had an unorthodox view. And in fact, uh, he has been kicked out of his church recently as well uh, here in America because of this view. Um, I, I don't quite understand where it comes from. I don't... It, to me, it just seems to make sense that since God is the creator of time and beyond time, that in this one moment of time, all moments are held together. And God knows the future as well as the past, as well as the present, all right now together. He is beyond time. And so I don't quite see where people get this idea, but it is a view that he held. I would certainly have worked right beside Dave and cooperated with him in everything that I could, and would have been proud to have, have gone to prison with him if the occasion had arisen. Jesus said to him in a, in a telling story in Luke 9.50, uh, the, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, well, what about this guy who's casting out demons in your name? Should we stop him? And Jesus replied, uh, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Are there some principles of what some people might call co-belligerency? I came up with five here. You might come up with others, some things to think through when it comes to whether or not you should cooperate with others that have a little bit different viewpoint than you do on things. Do you end up having to call dark light? They said on Isaiah 520, uh, woe unto those who call dark light and light dark. Do you have a common agreement on the action and motivation for the action? Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? Three, uh, do you have to give up your freedom, your authority, your freedom to somebody else in order to work together with them? Um, my brother-in-law uh, uh, started a business a number of years ago with another fellow who was a uh, much wiser about corporate law than he was. Uh, the other fellow was the salesman. He was going My brother-in-law was going to be the tech guy. He was the uh, the engineer, in effect, the computer person. 
And uh, when they started the business, uh, they set it up. The guy said, because I'm bringing in the sales, and sales are so important here for the corporation, I need to have 51%, and you can have 49%. Just need to have that difference. And my brother-in-law didn't consult an attorney, and he made that decision. And the fellow uh, began to pilfer all the funds of the, of the corporation and to uh, take vacations uh, on the dime and, and forbid my brother-in-law to take working vacations. And he basically had full control of the entire company because he had 51%, and my brother-in-law only had 49%. And he eventually fired my brother-in-law, in fact, from the company that he helped start and hired engineers to replace him. The, uh, um, are you having to compromise your freedom, your authority, to work together with this other person? Uh, Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 6.14 talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Number four, is the co-belligerent under the judgment of God? Mike has recently spoke about uh, Lot in the Old Testament. And Lot being in Sodom, even though he was a righteous man, he's considered, he's called a righteous man in the New Testament, he was still caught up in the judgment of God against Sodom. Do you want to really be caught up in something that God may be judging? And number five, would a greater absolute be compromised? Mark twelve twenty nine and 30, I've already referred to that uh, there's a greatest commandment and a second commandment. Applications? Are you clear on the gospel and what it means to be a Christian? If not, Get clear on it. Talk with somebody. Make sure you've got your questions answered and understand what does the Bible teach about entering into that special grace, that blessing that God has for people who know him. Are you able to share the gospel with other people without it being tainted by their things? And much as the, the, uh, the declaration is very, very important, I'd like to say that as we go to the Lord's Supper coming up here and remember the Lord, that even though we can find common ground in things that we want to work against or fight against, foundational issues that are very, very important, we don't want to forget that the gospel is the gospel, and it is foundational even beyond those other foundational things. Remembering who Jesus is and entering into his blessing is key to our society as well. Are you equipped to claim Christian history? Are you going to be stymied when the person comes up to you and, and says Christian history is full of religious wars and, and pogroms and crusades and inquisitions and oppression of women? Are you going to be ready with an answer for that person? Can you identify, number three, can you identify greater and lesser absolutes when they c- conflict? Are you prepared on that score? in the myriad of different issues and options that, can, that are asking for our attention. And number four, would you identify with those who have signed the declaration by signing? I think it's a good thing to do. I think it's uh, taking a stand on some key issues. You may, maybe you would want to decide with R.C. Sproul and others not to sign it, and that's understandable as well. But 
It's still good to have your personal convictions set and know where you stand, especially on these three foundational issues, if you haven't already decided. Let's end there. Lord, uh, thank you for this morning. It's been uh, academic. It's been a lot of reading. And um, I wish I'd had a clip from the hiding place to play this morning to make it a little bit more interesting and break it up. I pray that uh, out of uh, what we've talked about this morning, what we've read, it would prompt some thoughts and some discussion around the table with families and within our church. And um, you would help us to arrive at a conclusion individually, uh, speaking to and from our community of Lion and Lamb and to Topeka, Kansas on these issues with a clear voice speaking up first of all for the gospel and then on these issues that are so foundational to our society. We lift it up to you, Lord, now and we ask for your wisdom. Teach us according to your scripture and help us to uh, to understand you better and apply you to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.